always felt himself to be held in contempt in Ireland. That's why he liked London so much. He felt so much freer. And he didn't feel himself, as it were, under a constant critical eye. His attitude to London was uh, that it was a, it was a counter-world which redressed the balance of what he knew in Dublin. I remember him telling me one time that Connolly had described the literary scene in Dublin as warm and friendly as a pool of alligators. Dublin was a very, very claustrophobic place for much of the time we're talking about. It was particularly so for him because he had made himself awfully well-known without uh, having any means of support to go with it. It's very difficult to make life purely on verse alone. Therefore, it was a very claustrophobic place for him where people who really wished him no good and weren't prepared to do anything for him were hailing him at every turn of the road and every pub. So it was very nice for him. He, he, he certainly liked getting away to London where... Uh, although he wanted to be recognised there, he wanted to be recognised in a different sense. I think in many ways he felt he should receive more acclaim than he probably did in Dublin. James Smith of London University and Tony Cronin, friend and contemporary, remembering Patrick Kavanagh. The poet's visits to London were over a span of almost three decades. He went there first in the late 30s, then again in the mid to late 40s, later again in the 50s, his visits increasing in their frequency and in the amount of time he spent there. And finally, with greater success, he went there in the mid and late 60s. London was the third leg of a geographical journey that had taken him from Inneskeen in County Monaghan. The life that has lived there remains practically the same. Sad, grey, twisted, blind... And just awful. And to Dublin. There's no feeling of belief um, well, amongst the people I associated with anyway. Anyhow, my problem has been from the beginning that I lived in a fog and I could never see outside myself. I could never get a view of my own activity and even why I wrote verse is a problem to me. He was later to say that writing verse was a form of insanity. If so, it may be said of the perceptions of his particular kind of insanity that they unlayer the surface realities most of us live within but prefer not to confront. In many ways it is a good thing to be cast into exile among strangers who have no inkling of the other man concealed, monstrously musing in a field. In The Green Fool, which takes us from an invocation of Pastoral Monaghan with the kind of comprehension that made another writer's book, Laurie Lee's Cider with Rosie, such a classic of atmosphere, Kavanagh remembers how he arrived in London with... Two pounds and four shillings. And to make a poor man poor, my pounds were free state pounds and only worth 19 and sixpence each. He finds lodgings in Camden Town, in Roughton House, one of those stone Gothic lodging houses for the transient. Many Irish boys made Roughton House, Camden Town, first up from Mayo. The soft voices of Mayo and Galway, sounding in that gaunt, impersonal place, fell like warm rain on the arid patches of my imagination. I'm going into town. I'll be long with you. 
These boys were true peasants. They walked with an awkward gait and were shy. To me, they looked up as to a learned man and posed me crooked questions which I couldn't answer. I wasn't greatly interested in these boys. I'd seen too much of them in Ireland. Their characters, impressionable as wax, were soon to wear the impress of common vulgarity. One evening, a washy lad with an artificial leg, aged about 25, attached himself to me. He'd come, he said, on a lorry from Leeds to sell coronation stuff. His coronation stuff was the poorest catchpenny of all. A few hundred postcard pictures of the royal family. I told him he would get few to buy the cards. He didn't agree. The simpler your coronation stuff, the better, he said. I'll get a shilling each for them, and with any luck, maybe half a dollar. As I appeared very interested, he instructed me in his business methods, a sort of guide to careers in the underworld. I'll go to the West End in the evening, he explained. Should trade be bad, I have another way of doing business. I'll take off my artificial leg and take my place as a war veteran. He produced from his pocket a bunch of war medals and ribbon decorations. Would you like one? he asked. I didn't mind. It won't do you any harm to wear this, he said, as he fixed on the label of my coat a monstar or military cross. We neither of us knew rightly what it was. I am certain my medal was one of the highest decorations, which must have rewarded great gallantry. The newfound attachment of medal and friend involved him in adventure. We struggled through the dense crowds of people in Oxford Circus. We were to take up positions in Bond Street or Regent Street, whichever might be the best. All the streets of the West End were thronged with sightseers. Crowds of people with their mouths open were staring up at Selfridge's Angel of Peace. It's wonderful, I heard them saying. And why shouldn't it be, was the answer. It cost £40,000 to decorate Selfridge's. That's an awful atrocity, I said to my partner. He had no aesthetic sensibility. He ignored my comment, being far too intent on business to have any heed in the finicky echoes of a poet's palate. Having listened to Woodenleg's rosy tale of good business, I had imagined that our company would have few rivals. I was greatly surprised to find vendors of coronation stuff on every yard of the pavement and coronation stuff a hundred times more gaudy and more plausible than ours. I expressed my surprise. Don't mind that, he reassured me. See the crowds there are. We'll easily be with two quid a man for the night. I had my doubts. He took his stand on the edge of the pavement. Watch me, he said. Then he began to cry out. Coronation souvenirs! Coronation souvenirs! When anyone showed the slightest interest, he would lean to them and as man to man point out the uniqueness of his wear. Lovely stuff! Nothing like it to be had! You'll never forget the coronation! See how charming Princess Margaret looks! He had wonderful patience. He was willing to wait and want and suffer. Such humble endurance is the kingdom of millionaires. The profession was overcrowded. Worse than even literature, I thought. 
In Charing Cross Road there was a poet in every bookshop. In this street there was a vendor of coronation stuff on every yard. After half an hour's vain appeal, he came to me. We moved into a doorway. He took off his artificial leg. There were air holes on the leg. Is it moth-eaten? I asked. Ventilation, he explained. You'll take care of the leg, he said. While we try this other plan, stick up your metal. He himself was already busily converting his poor TB-wasted body into a war veteran's. I put up my medal. He was more hero-glorious than Earl Haig on his horse. Then he picked up his crutches and, positioning himself in an old soldier pose, he began to call out in a broken sergeant-major voice. Help an old soldier, wounded in the head at Mons, lost the leg at Ypres. God save the king and queen. I made no effort to play the old soldier. I hadn't the neck to do it. And I was afraid of being arrested. It was an Irish fear. Cavanagh overcame his fear of being arrested sufficiently to go to one of the newspapers with a concoction of a story about the IRA bombing of a monument in Dublin, but fled when he was questioned about the technicalities of the explosives. But in the encounter, he did pick up enough information to sell the story to another newspaper, and then he tried another possible source of income. He had the addresses of two literary people. One of them was a man, the other was a lady. This man was a once-upon-a-time poet who had taken refuge of spent poets, journalism and anthology compiling. He was in, but not in to me. He was sitting in a pleasant front room in a pleasant part of the city, very busy writing. He opened the window and spoke to me. I told him who I was. He looked puzzled. I, uh, I had a poem in one of your anthologies, I said. There are so many poets, he began. I didn't wait. Damn you, you're no poet anyway, I shouted as I strode out, banging the gate after me. Bang went sixpence. It cost me threepence each way on the train. As all my dreams seemed going to hell, I spent another shilling of my funds on a second-hand copy of Chekhov's short stories. I went to my room, stretched myself on my back on the bed, and read far into the night. Beautiful stories, these by Chekhov. They brought me into a world made not by a radiant creator, but by a brilliant technician. Next morning, I walked to Charing Cross Road, the road of the books, where things happen. I was prowling around Foyle's bookshop, fingering volumes that I couldn't afford to buy. In the poetry section, I was startled to hear my name spoken. A slate-built fellow addressed me. Uh, you're Patrick Cavanaugh, he said. Are you a member of the yard? I returned. You're uh, the Irish poet? How did you know? I said. I uh, heard your broad Irish brogue when you spoke to the assistant. I, I saw you were interested in poetry, and um, these two facts for me spelled Patrick Cavanaugh. I'm uh, Galsworth. John Galsworth, the poet? I said. I was delighted to find that my name had penetrated so far into the jungle of literature. We went into a cafe and, over cups of coffee, 
praised each other. Before we parted, John Gosworth loaned me five shillings. I became acquainted with a fellow who seemed to have a dame in every street. He reminded me of the character in Chekhov's story, who went among his women like a panel doctor visiting his patients. He invited me to some of his clients' flats. In each of these was one pretty dame and one ugly one. The ugly one was for me, but I wasn't having any. These were my experiences in London. A trifle comical, like the image of my soul. I had been five months in London. From the noise and excitement I passed. I returned to Ireland. Ireland green and chaste and foolish. And when I wandered over my own hills and talked again to my own people, I looked into the heart of this life and I saw that it was good. And found that it was good whether through this early failure to make his way as he would have wished in London, whether this encouraged him to lyricise the values of the Ireland he had left, it is difficult to say with any degree of certainty. He was later to regret not having stayed on there in his first try. He told me he deeply regretted not having stayed in London in 1938. In fact, he used a phrase. He said, if I had stayed in London then, they'd be setting competitions about me and the new statesman by now. Was that hindsight uh, imagination? Well, I mean, maybe it would have been the case, maybe it wouldn't. Uh, I, you know, it, it's possible, it's possible. Uh, his career there was interrupted by the war and I suppose the Gogarty libel action, the comparative failure of the Green Fool, all that kind of thing, principally the war, I would think. But if an imagined life in London pulled him one way in what it might offer, the early years in Stony Grey Monaghan had a more powerful effect on his poetic imagination. Some years after his return from London, in 1942 was published The Great Hunger, an epic work drawn from the Monaghan rural life whose awfulness, as he saw it, he now put into heroic proportions. Applause, applause, the curtain falls. Applause, applause, from the homing carts and the trees and the bowling cows at the gates, from the screeching water hens and the mill race heavy with the llamas' floods curving over the weir. A train at the station blowing off steam, and the hysterical laughter of the defeated everywhere. Night and the futile cards are shuffled again. Maguire spreads his legs over the impotent cinders that wake no manhood now, and he hardly looks to see which card is trump. His sister tightens her legs and her lips and frizzles up, like the wick of a nihilist lamp. The curtain falls. Applause, applause. If, as he said of Monaghan, that life there was sad, grey, twisted and just awful, he was later to revise that assessment. It's not nearly as bad as you'd imagine, living among small farmers in the north of Ireland. They are for the most part the ordinary frightened, blind brightened, referred to sometimes socially as the underprivileged. They cannot perceive irony or even satire. They start up with insane faces if you break the newspaper model code. Language the screech you so-and-so, and you would throw into precarious silence, organising in your mind quickly, for the situation is tense, the theological tenets of the press. 
There's little you can do about some who roar horribly as you enter a bar. Incantations of ugliness, words of half a syllable, locked in malicious muteness full of glare. Indeed, part of the London experience may have helped him in coming to terms on the relationship between the rural pastoral on the one hand and the metropolitan urban experience on the other. We note that most common complaints about ourselves is that we are parochial. And it might be interesting to speculate on just what is parochialism and is it related to provincialism. Parochialism and provincialism are direct opposites. The provincial has no mind of his own. He does not trust what his eyes see until he has heard what the metropolis, towards which his eyes are turned, has to say on the subject. He would tend to avoid the Irish. The Irish were failure. They represented failure to him. And he looked on most of the London Irish as phonies or failures or both. As long as we remain provincial with London or metropolis, there will always be a market for bogus Irishness. His idea was to be accepted in English literary London, not in Irish literary London. He exaggerated the importance of all sort of literary acquaintance he made. And he was much, much less rigorous in his judgment of English poets with whom he became acquainted than he was in his judgment of the general run of Irish poets. If he became acquainted with somebody, and this somebody, or it doesn't matter, we, you know, we won't bother to name names, but this somebody knew his work or made some favourable reference to that suggested he knew his work or something like that, uh, this particular poet would have the true Parnassian note as far as Cavanaugh was concerned. But the metropolis has never anything but contempt for its subservient provinces. The metropolis is not interested in the imaginative reality of provincial society. It only asks the provincial to perform. There are two sides to Paddy Kavanagh, the public and the private. Now, in public, he could be rancorous and tolerant and a very difficult man. However, in private, he was absolutely the opposite. He was considerate, gentle, and a man of extraordinary perception. What about the clownish side of him that one hears people remember occasionally? Oh, well, that was most endearing. Leland Bardwell. You know, unless it was directed against you, in which case it was uh, terrible. But once, uh, if, 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 when he was clowning, he, he was really funny. He was a funny man. He was a funny fellow. He had a great sense of fun, which is a wonderful thing. By the late 40s, he had a growing reputation now to take with him on his resumed visits to London, a second collection of poetry, A Soul for Sale, had been published in 47, and the novel Tarry Flynn published in 48. Both were well received, so that by the early 50s his more frequent visits to London were those of a man with some literary substance behind him, though not, it must be said, any great economic substance. Priscilla McNamara. I do remember that I was then working in Cresset Press in about 19... 19- 49 or so, when uh, Paddy phoned me up and said, uh, had I got a copy of Terry Flynn, which was one of the uh, books published by Pilot Press, and I did have one, and I arranged to meet him in the Lamb and a Goat and Compass pub near uh, Fitzroy Square, and hand it over to him, which I did. Uh, 
he then said, could I lend him one and sixpence? Because he'd spent literally his last penny coming in the bus from Hampstead, I think the 24 bus it would have been, and he uh, needed the money to get to the BBC. That's why he wanted the copy of Terry Flynn. He used to think of various sources of income. Uh, at one stage, I remember, he, he discovered that paragraphs, gossip paragraphs, contributed to the gossip columns in the daily newspapers were paid for, that they came from outside sources and that they were paid for, that there was five guineas given for them or something like that, even though they all appeared collectively under the same pseudonym in the Daily Express, William Hickey or whatever. And he, at one stage, imagined that he would build up quite an income by contributing to this kind of thing. He stayed with various mutual friends of ours. I seem to remember him staying with uh, Tom Hughes, a doctor. I think he was still studying at the time, who had a a, a bed-sitting room quite near here in in, uh, West Hampstead. And Tom complaining bitterly of... uh, I think Paddy drank all his milk, something like that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he had difficult house habits. <laughs> he would um, stay with uh, anybody who happened to be handy, whom, whom he was acquainted with. Uh, I remember him staying with various people. Um, it's very difficult to convey the difference between people who are supposed to be bohemians in the silly sense uh, in which that word is used and people who are not, in fact, fussy about, you know, sort of uh, physical comforts and and who remain adventurous to the end. Uh, He wasn't pushed. He would dust down here or there, like, happily enough. And he wasn't interested in that kind of uh, thing, really. He was staying at the time in this one room in Camden Town, and I'd rather pleasant flat in Hampstead, and he decided to stay there. Needless to say, when he decided to stay... I felt great trepidation indeed, but it turned out the very opposite. I remember one night, I came home late, and Paddy was in the sitting room with a large bottle of whiskey. I asked him where he got it, and he said, Oh, a couple of people left me home from pub in Fulham Road. I asked him who they were, and it turned out they were two of England's leading film stars. And I said, Why didn't you ask them in? He said, But you weren't here. I'd never dream of asking that class of person in without your permission. He also dreamt of literary rows. He wanted to get involved in literary rows there because that was one of his ways of, you know, calling on people to recognise his existence. And um, I remember when he did get a book for review or that kind of thing, he always sort of fancied that he might be able to build some sort of a row around it. You will be able to say there that uh, whatever was the name of these people that write these plays, this trash that's so supposed to be famous and great. Kitchen. Kitchen. Kitchen sink trash. And all Wester and Pinter. Rubbish or literate rubbish. That's a bit sweeping. I think Everything is true. Allow me to finish. If a thing is true, it sweeps. That thing to say a thing is true. If I say a thing, and it's not a sweeping statement, it's a lie. All, all truth is sweeping. It sweeps everything away. One night I met him, and somehow the conversation came round to the poems of Thomas Hardy. Immediately, Paddy stood up, shouted very belligerently, I'll not hear a word about that damn blackguard in my company. 
Well, about a week later, I went home and I found Paddy reading Thomas Hardy. He turned to me and said, My God, this is great stuff. I said, But Paddy, a week ago you condemned him outright. I said, That's a trick I learned from Miles Nogopolin. If you don't know anything about the author personally, blackguard him. Well, there were always the Guinness parties, and he'd been several of those. On one occasion, he asked me to accompany him. And uh, Lord Moyne, of course, was there, and the, the waiters were all dispensing black velvet. And uh, Patrick didn't want black velvet. He thought it was a very mediocre drink, and he asked for whiskey. So um, I got him. I went to the table and insisted that Mr. Cavendish should have whiskey. And they said, certainly, of course, Mr. Cavendish should have whiskey. And he was very pleased with that. And then uh, he was also delighted because uh, I quoted Miles to Lord Moyne. When I was introduced to Lord Moyne, I said, Silent, O Moyne, by the roar of thy waiters. And uh, Patrick was delighted with this. He said he was, I was the best person he'd ever brought to a party. I behaved exactly as I should have. <laughs> Under the apparent dossing down, there was a perambulating purpose. There was, and there certainly is, a world of letters. He hoped to enter this world of letters. He hoped to be recognised in it. He, he didn't associate this with uh, dramatic improvements in his personal circumstances, though he did hope that there would be such. Uh, he didn't necessarily acquainted, uh, associated with acquaintanceship with duchesses or that kind of thing, though indeed he hoped there would be such also. He also had the myth of rich women. Uh, they tended in later years to be more uh, American than English, but uh, naturally he thought of patronage and that kind of thing. But he thought of these things as evidences of civilization, and, and it was a reception into a sort of civilization he was thinking of, not the kind of ambitions now that uh, an ordinary person would have. This was a highly imaginative thing. He was a great friend of Thomas Blackburn, John Heath Stubbs, George Barker, and I believe he knew Francis Bacon. As a matter of fact, I met him one night when he'd been to the Francis, Francis Bacon exhibition at the Tate. And this is a side of Paddy which few people recognised, his extraordinary critical eye for painting. I remember he described the Bacon exhibition as a gallery of Dickensian monsters. And then he suddenly corrected himself and said, no, not monsters just tragically human. He had a great sense of the sophistication of the arts in London. He's a great admirer of people like uh, Francis Bacon, John Heath Stubbs, uh, Auden the Poet, and so on, if I may say so on. Richard Oriad. <laughs> but uh, these were the people who fascinated him in London and the sort of environs he liked to be in. What about uh, other things in London? When you met him there, did you get a sense that he was enjoying himself or he was being stimulated there? Well, it was hard to know with Patrick when he was enjoying himself, but he was usually stimulated. I had this large flat in, in uh, near Holloway, near Camden Road, between Camden Road and Holloway, behind the jail, actually. And, in fact, we used to drink in a pub just behind the gates, the main gates of the jail, which caused a lot of amusement and other emotions. And uh, this large flat drew a number of people, uh, amongst whom, of course, was Patrick, and people like John Heath Stubbs and David Wright and Anthony Carson, Tony Cronin, two Roberts again, and uh, George Barker on many occasions came up. 
and various other people. I think Louis McNeese might have been there once or twice. In contrast to the 1930s adventures of The Green Fool, for Kavanagh, the 1950s in London were much more promising. Things got better for him in London uh, as time went by. I think that the first uh, of the republication he had in London really was a friend of mine, Frank Rodman, was in charge of a paperback publishing firm at the time and he reissued Terry Flynn. Um, He was included in a couple of anthologies. Um, Thomas Blackburn, who was a friend of mine who read for Longmans, he brought out uh, Kitty Stobling. They brought out Kitty Stobling at Tommy's urgings. like Kitty Stobling was made a Poetry Book Society choice, an accolade which guaranteed a certain amount of distinction and a certain amount of sales. It was some time before its publication, in 1959, that he got to know Catherine, who was to become his wife, Leland Bardwell. Yeah, actually they sort of became friends in my flat, flat in Holloway and uh, they, they became great friends and it was so nice to see them going around holding hands and because uh, Patrick was such a shy person, you know, and he was obviously so happy. And then when Catherine got this lovely flat in Islington Green, um, he used to go over and see her there and then when he wrote his poem about Islington, it was obviously about her because she had done so much for him the beginning years of the 60s were very happy years for him in London. Uh, these were the years that the Islington poem was about. Because she had done so much for him. In, in what ways? Um, well, she always looked after him and he, he always needed somebody to look after him because he was a clumsy sort of person and she really saw that he had plenty of clean clothes and was warm and all this kind of small, simple things that he had done without for so many years, you know. And he was so free then with her, you know. She managed that side of his she, life, yes. to some, the creature comforts yes. to some extent. Uh, yes. Wonderfully. And he, was, he, he reciprocated it so well. He would go out and fetch the coal, for instance, you know, and make the fires, things that he had, would never have bothered to do. He would never even pick up his own cap, you know. If he dropped it, he'd wait for somebody else to do it. And... Um, in that sense, she did so much for him. And I think it's often overlooked, the, the, you know, the amount that she did for him and how well she knew him. She really did. She knew him extremely well. In Islington, for the moment I reside, a hen's race from Cheapside, where Tom the peeping son first eyed, where Gilpin's horse had bolted, all the traffic halted, the man on board was malted. And in these romantic lots, I run into Paul Potts, noticing the pull of roots. I have taken roots of love and will find it pain to move. Betjeman, you've missed much of the secrets of London while old churches you beguile. I'll show you a holier isle. The length of Gibson Square caught in November's stare that would set you to prayer. I walk in Islington Green, finest landscape you ever seen. I'm as happy as I've ever been. Well, he liked the the sense of... uh, tremendous sense of life and vitality of London, the great institutions of British life, I have to say. 
much more anonymous in London and he didn't have the the daily nastiness which he often got in pubs here in Dublin people laughing at him laughing at his manners you know and, and making a personal thing out of it London is it being a much more cosmopolitan city you don't get that kind of thing really to such an extent everybody's accepted green black white you know you know and so uh, a person can sit in a pub without drawing attention to themselves in the same sort of way I approached him in a fairly hesitant way and uh, eventually agreed with him by what you skulking around for, you English bastard. Uh, I'm Paddy Kavanagh and I don't need your sort of company. This was later, much later, rescinded completely when I got to know Kavanagh and uh, got to admire and love him. I remember one brilliant occasion when we'd been at a party given by a rich sponsor of the arts from America in uh, Nash Terrace at Regent's Park a place where every single item of furniture was worth four or five hundred pounds and each one still had a sticker from the salesrooms on. Kavanagh got very fed up with it, along with various other personalities, such um, as Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger's current girlfriend, Marion Faithful. And eventually Kavanagh demanded in no uncertain terms that he wanted to be taken home. I myself was uh, suffering heavily from the effects of uh, this free alcohol at this party and tried to take him home in a small old minivan through a gap which didn't exist in a fence, drawing attention of what Paddy Leffin referred to as the police. I managed to reverse out of this aperture, which was too small for the van, and get moving away from the scene of the crime. We were eventually tracked and followed and uh, slowed down and flagged down in uh, Bloomsbury Square, at which point Paddy decided that he needed to get out and have a pee. The police haven't had asked me to stand up without the aid of um, my parking meter and noticing my collapse um, when I did let go of it were all for taking me in until this great resonant voice boomed out from the back of this minivan, you know. Away with you, black police. I'm Patrick Kevin of the greatest living Irish poet. Now, Paddy had said this often in uh, jest and often in uh, serious drunkenness, but he'd never said it with much more useful and uh, brilliant... Um, acumen. The police immediately said that they didn't realise that I had such an important person in their car and with a wry smile let me go. This, this was the Paddy I knew, the, the lovely man who wouldn't stop at anything. You know. But a poet in his true detachment should be impervious to policemen. There is something wrong with a work of art, some kinetic vulgarity in it, and it is visible to a policeman. Well, I loved him through his writing, not through the man. The man was... Um, lovable because of his writing. I mean, it's a, a simple thing. I think it's probably happened to lots of other people. I never had the, the boredom and drag of looking after Paddy in his petulant moods. Was, this was magnificently done by Cathy Kavanagh. Uh, Cathy I loved in a, in a different sense. Cathy was a, a lovely, warm-hearted um, and shrewd woman who knew that she could do Paddy the best and did the best she could for him, you know. Paddy came over as, uh, as a, a noble man, you know. A, a, an artist.
Alan Smith, a Yorkshire-born painter and habitué of the Plough Public House in Bloomsbury, and one of the poet's friends who, a few years after his death, had a plaque put up in his memory. Well, as was the normal thing with Kavanagh, um, he always had a lot of friends, um, acquaintances, namely uh, people that were involved with him in the pub, friends of his wife. And um, just after the Kavanagh Memorial seat had been erected in Dublin, the majority of the people involved in that, back in England, decided that there should be some activity to commemorate his um, times that he'd spent with us in London. At this moment in time, I can't actually remember who actually put up the idea, but I've heard rumours that it was John Watson, the publisher. The day was decided on St. Patrick's Day to put up the plaque, which was executed by the artist Desmond uh, McNamara. I did um, an imitation bronze plaque, which Paddy would have been pleased with, we're all sure anyway. It was the usual Saturday crowd in the plough, suddenly injected with 50, or apparently 50, Kavanagh admirers, all brain like hell and buying pints and things of this nature. In, re- in reality, probably 20 to 30 people attended, mainly publishers, uh, poets, artists, people that had come into the Kavanagh periphery and um, had remembered him and seen the trademark and relied on it. The plaque was uh, fixed with uh, little difficulty, only to be later pulled down with even less difficulty. But um, that's not really what we're talking about. We all spilled out from the pub. It was like a Bloomsbury Festival long before the Bloomsbury Festival was thought of. Various toasts were made, speeches were put over by friends and publishers. His London publishers made one or two um, comments. It was a nice bright morning. Photographs were taken. The odd bottle of champagne appeared mainly Paddy's whiskey, and then all back in the pub. Excellently executed and excellently done. Within an hour, the plaque had been christened in the correct fashion by one of the less nervous members. How was it christened? It was christened by someone putting a platitudinous, or pastiche, shall we say, of Paddy's own activity there, with a good urination of um, a lunchtime's drinking. There were others present who had planned this christening to take place after dark and without the police, but um, one brave soul went out and did it in broad daylight in the spot which Paddy had used because one could lean over the wall and appear to be looking at the post office vans in the car park. This was Kavanagh's whole excuse, much to the chagrin of the landlord at the time that Kavanagh used to use the place. Because he wouldn't climb upstairs, was that it? He would not go upstairs. Lung gave him too much trouble, interfered with the rest of his lunches drinking. By the mid-1960, Patrick Kavanagh's statue was firmly established among that world of letters in London, that world that must have appeared so elusive to the immigrant from Monaghan in the 30s. He got something approaching the recognition he wanted, which he was beginning to realise by then was a different kind of recognition from perhaps what he had dreamed of earlier and had a great deal less of uh, obvious circumstantial elements in it, but had some very nice, happy, small circumstantial elements. In fact, he was beginning to realise that some quite famous English poets uh, didn't live in very lavish circumstances and were known only to their fellow poets to a large extent or to, or to, to a very small, limited circle of people. And he was happy to settle for this kind of thing as well. A high point of that recognition was his appearance at the Poetry International, a jamboree held on the South Bank in 1967. 
friend and publisher Martin Green. It uh, was very memorable for me because Patrick Kavanagh was there um, and I normally hate poetry readings and all that kind of thing but when you have the real article such as Patrick Kavanagh um, it becomes an, ally uh, comes an experience which is worth uh, taking part in. What, what particularly was there about him that, that made it such an experience for you? Uh, his presence. Um, Paddy Swift has written somewhere that, that, the, that the poet is in the person. And in, in, in Patrick Kavanagh's case, the poet certainly was in the person. You felt when you were in his presence that you were in the presence of a poet. Though his memory is held trenchantly in the hearts and minds of his friends, the plaque did not survive. Well, it was a normal lunchtime, as far as I can recall, when I and uh, about four or five friends of mine were standing in the plough, uh, 20 yards away from the wall that Paddy used to go out to uh, of an afternoon. And uh, I remember a voice, I can't remember who is now, suddenly saying, look, uh, a group of people were standing around, the little plaque that we had put up a year before, and looking through the windows of the plough, we saw a very strange group, a man bent down with a little duffel bag, and he had taken out of it uh, a hammer and a chisel, and he was chipping away at this wall, removing the plaque. Together with him was his, as it later turned out, was his sister, who was a nun, wearing the nun's habit. And with both of these adults, there were two young children, about eight, nine years old, a boy and a girl. And they, uh, in a sort of strange ceremony, removed this plaque with anger. It was felt that it was anger. And we, w we watched, rather transfixed, at this extraordinary scene. We didn't move, we didn't object. Uh, it was felt, and I think rightly, that this was in fact Paddy Kavanagh's brother. And he felt uh, a personal um, aggrievance at it, and it, that it was a, somehow a rebuff, uh, a, 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 an un unnecessary tribute to his brother. We only put up that plaque in a uh, feeling of friendship, of love, and of affection for Paddy, the man that we had known and loved for a decade and more. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big 